because it is inevitable in a relationship that we will get to a phase where the first round of our disillusionment happens. The real question is, what do you do? What happened? I mean, it doesn't seem like rocket science to me that if the family unit and how we grew up responded to this non-beingness, this, this existential opening that we all have to survive in our life time and time again, if that was dealt with through violence, through silence, through some mixture of the two, you know, if there was no modeling or conduit to metabolize these experiences, well, then we don't have it, period, full stop. We just don't have the instinct to create a kind of progressive set of events to lead that difficult emotion to being social. Welcome to the Dignity of Suffering. Have you ever been brought to your knees by the challenges of life? What if you could enter the world of the therapist, be a fly on the wall, and hear their stories and insights into life's biggest challenges? Discovering a place to learn from the experiences of others who've tried to find dignity in their suffering. Each week, Mitchell Smolkin takes a candid look at the trials and tribulations of being alive. Mitchell is a registered psychotherapist, author and speaker. He hopes to show that slowing down and becoming curious about our human experience can enrich our perspectives and plant our feet more firmly on the ground. Now, here's Mitchell. Welcome to episode 25, quarter of a century. You know, I've been reflecting lately on kind of the origins of this podcast and to be honest with you, at times to create a body of work like this and sustain, you know, week to week episodes, at times it it's not easy. It, maybe I don't feel inspired or uh, I want to spend time with family. I actually think, though, there's something really important about the constraint of continually having this touch point. And a number of you actually will tell me about, you know, finding the podcast and then going back and listening to every episode. And that's just, that's incredible. What an incredible gift to have people that find this work meaningful and interesting. And and so I remember when I was thinking of creating a podcast or some of the books that I'd like to write, one of them is is to sort of go in this direction of like confessions of a couples therapist. And if you're new to the podcast, you can go back. I, I do a session with a couple live, which I'd like to do again. But one of my great joys in my life, in my professional life, my life as a teacher is talking and thinking about human relationships. And I'd liken today's podcast to zero in on a particular dynamic that I am laser focused on in every session that I ever do, and frankly, focused on in my own marriage. And it has to do with a very kind of simple idea on the surface that the human being loses their higher order capacity when the ways that we confront the world become literalized. What I mean by that is that 
There's a phenomena that when we are scared, overwhelmed, slighted, embarrassed, and of course this is different for everybody in terms of the valence and how this manifests, but but actually in some cases there's a particular way that the human brain reduces things to binaries when we don't see another way out. And of course, you've heard me talk about how you know, the real goal in life to an extent, or the goal of most situations is what is a perceived threat, you know, when we believe there isn't a way out, but really there is. And, and obviously situations where we have to be, you know, acutely aware that we are in danger. And of course, there's no recipe for that. I mean, that is ultimately, you know, that is probably Darwin to an extent at its core in terms of the way the organism you know evolves and and shapes around an environment to to be as successful as it possibly can but to bring it back to relationships and what in every session when a couple comes in and and this isn't just related to couples therapy maybe those of you who are out there maybe aren't in relationships or don't care about couples therapy what I'm underscoring is less to do with the kind of cliche of of a couple coming in and seeing a therapist it has more to do with the fundamental ways that we organize and protect ourselves. Uh, I may have referenced him before, but there's a great psychologist and writer and psychoanalyst named Donald Kalsheb, who has written at least two very successful books. Uh, one is called The Inner World of Trauma, and one is called Trauma and the Soul. And he highlights the fact that at our base, when we need to protect ourselves, there is what he calls a self-care system that basically just hinges on life and death. So our more primitive physiology, which I think informs these kinds of archetypally motivated thought patterns, come out to play when we feel unsafe. And as I was saying before, that, that may be a very real situation, but the vast majority of the time, that is generational, that is culture, that is how we interpret a particular moment. You know, how many times do you maybe think somebody is, is mad at you or you're not sure what's going on and, you know, it's not there? <laughs> or someone thinks you're upset and you're not? I mean, we are exquisitely attuned to human relationships. And the higher the stakes, the more that we feel completed by, mirrored by, held by, the more we have invested in a relationship with somebody, have children, maybe get a house or an apartment or move to be somewhere together. Part of the issue, to use this banal metaphor that I always use, is that this is like putting all of your stock... <laughs> you know, into one stock, right? Putting putting all your eggs in one basket, which we have to do. That's what a kind of singular romantic relationship is. There's something very sacred if you choose monogamy, and that's more what I'm familiar with. So for those of you that have other models, I'll just acknowledge that I'm not as as familiar with how that works. And I'm open, but I'm also cautious at times because this this container between two people 
uh, creates a lot of pressure, a lot of heat, a lot of expectation, a lot of fantasy about the future. And it's like a very close, intimate dance that sometimes can go on for 50, 60 years. And the self-care system that Donald Kalshad writes about is very powerful. I think there are equal ways of understanding this from simply examining the autonomic nervous system and its innate responses to threat in the ways that it will really just set the body up to fight or to run away or to die. And more philosophical ways of of appreciating the other end of the spectrum where when we are in states of panic, we're not attuned necessarily to the fact that our heart is racing faster. We might notice it, but actually there's some logic to the fact that we sometimes don't know how stressed we were until after. And you'll, you'll hear people often say that, like, I didn't realize how anxious I was or how, you know, I didn't realize for how long I was protecting myself, right? Often people will have to grieve or really take time to heal from things. And that has a function as well, that we experience our survival mechanisms in image and thought. And this is the part where I was referring earlier to the kind of literalization of, of our worldview and our view of ourself and our view of others. And to take it to the most extreme level, at some point, if someone takes their life, and I'm sure there are many ways that this can occur, but it would come to a pretty literal level of, I, there is no point in going on. There is no value in going on. I don't deserve to live. You know, that when the human organism can turn on itself and end its own life, there's this very literal, very binary equation. And again, I don't pretend to simplify that conundrum. There's a great essay, The Myth of Sisyphus by Camus, where he begins his book by wondering about this phenomena. I think that naming this and understanding the fact that we tend to go into these very simple equations when we are overwhelmed is important because human beings are often at their best, forget situations of survival, but human beings are often at their best when we can contain multitudes, when we can metabolize our own anxiety meaning we don't shut down or go for the low-hanging fruit when something is bothering us and turn somebody else into a zombie. And this is a, out of a lecture that I recently listened to, which talked about how easy it is for human beings to zombify the other person, as in, you are non-human, you, you are lacking human capacity, right? And we do this so casually right? How could you eat that? <laughs> How could you wear that? What, what do you like about that show? What, what do you like about that person? How could you work there, right? Just these very casual comments that we can make. But this is obviously from a place of fear. I mean, it's fine to joke with somebody, but, but really, like this is, we have to endeavor to recognize the intellectual 
poverty of that kind of stance. But furthermore, and that's why I was so affected by this idea of how easily we turn the other into a non-human because it's it's reckless and it's too easy. You know, you're driving and somebody cuts you off or someone makes a mistake on the road. Where did you get your license? <laughs> Whatever, I'm being kind, right? But who knows? There's a great story. I don't know if I ever told this on the podcast of when I was driving with my grandmother and we were pulling into a cafe for lunch. And all of a sudden, this car cuts us off and and my grandmother starts to unleash, calling this, this person every name in the book in Yiddish, which was even more humorous and, and affecting. And then we drive by and realize that it was my mother <laughs> who was coming to meet us for lunch. And my grandmother turned red and was like, you can't tell her what I said. And in that moment, you know, my grandmother zombified my mother, not just, just objectified her completely, car person cutting off. But it was the human relationship that actually brought her back to her senses. And it's fascinating. Because it was her daughter, she felt guilty. Right? Well, how is that different? I mean, the objective act was the same. But of course, what's different about it is relationship. And so one of the great tragedies of when these self-care systems come into play, and they are inevitable in our life to an extent. I think that, you know, Kalshed articulates in his theory, which is, I think, widely consistent with developmental theory, that you know, various kinds of unsafe environments, various kinds of experiences growing up. You've heard me talk about the adverse child experience study, the ACEs study. Th these are fairly predictable that we can probably to an extent measure how strong somebody's self-care system is going to be. And what that would mean, for example, is, you know, somebody might have a very hard time going into a meeting, for instance, where they're going to be exposed because they are afraid of being fired, of being found out as a fraud. And another person may have a more regulated sense of their own value. So they're not going into the meeting with the same heart racing. And so this is, I think, the kind of spectrum of how we might comport ourselves. And the great tragedy of that is that underneath these binary processes of zombifying the other person, maybe even zombifying ourselves, right? You know, I have failed. I, what did I do wrong? I'm not talking about just sort of basic self-reflection. I'm talking about shame. You know that, you know, I, I am wrong because I have done something so, so horribly unforgivable. You know, or it gets projected outwards to the other person or the government or who knows, a family member, right? This is very dangerous. This is dangerous for our civil society when we lose that capacity to hold that tension, that's when wars start. That's when people kill each other. But I don't think we have to go to that level of violence to appreciate that when I am with a couple and, and somebody comes in and they're hurt and their immediate response is to not only express that they're hurt, but also the brain remembers every other time they've been hurt and it hasn't been successfully repaired – and that builds into such a tapestry of pain that the human organism basically locks itself in and sees the other person 
as a threat in their environment. And when we go into that stress response, we lose relationship. We lose the fact that the other person is actually the key to our salvation to an extent. And I guess what I mean by that is the reason that we are in such pain and and grief when we feel alone or someone lets us down is actually because of how important someone is to us. So what I do, and I think quite successfully most of the time, and that's a bit strange to say, but I feel compelled in some ways to share how effective it is to slow down human beings and help them embody what it is that is causing them to project their anguish outwards or onto themselves. And a lot of things happen in the room, and this happens on a regular basis. People will feel things in their body in very intense ways, and often ways that are counterintuitive to how they want to deal with those emotions. And this is pulling from emotion-focused therapy, but we break these things down into looking at what the action tendency is. So the question is, when I am humiliated or when I feel like you have missed me in some way or I don't feel important to you, what is it that I do? How do I communicate that? And remember, it's a relationship. So, you know, this is that whole thing of quantum physics, right? That, you know, when something is observed, it changes, right? There's this theory that processes that are occurring without someone looking at them are actually different than with someone looking at them. So there's this, there's always the interaction of the couple. But the question is for all of us, when I am in that place of non-being or when I am overwhelmed, what do I do? And one of the things that I do with couples when they first meet with me is I track that. I go back and I want to find out after the proverbial honeymoon phase ends, and some of us have that phase and some of us don't, but after when you start to feel the brokenness of yourself and of life and the other person, and I'm deliberate in saying that because it is inevitable in a relationship that we will get to a phase where the first round of our disillusionment happens. The real question is, what do you do? What happened? I mean, it doesn't seem like rocket science to me that If the family unit and how we grew up responded to this non-beingness, this existential opening that we all have to survive in our life time and time again, if that was dealt with through violence, through silence, through some mixture of the two, you know, if there was no modeling or conduit to metabolize these experiences, well, then we don't have it, period, full stop. We just don't have the instinct to create a kind of progressive set of events to lead that difficult emotion to being social. And this goes back to the beginning of what I was saying today, that if the self-care system, which is binary, comes in and protects you from either an external humiliation or an internal humiliation, as in, I am overwhelmed right now and this, this is too much, this makes me feel too exposed. That is, again, just quintessential developmental psychology. The human being will feel less exposed if the human being has had practice with another human being feeling mediated and safe in a good enough environment. That is just how it works. We need language. We need physical touch. We need the parent to be one step ahead of us. 
a good deal of the time and not react to our overwhelm or our questions when we're little with their own emotional violence against themselves or the world. Period. That's it. If that was all you got, then it's going to be super hard when that comes to you as an adult and one needs to be social and sort of sort of connect the dots a little bit. What you know, what happens if the self-care system doesn't sort of get triggered? And and I realize I may be using that without having explained it enough, but just think of it as, you know, if you think about fight or flight or you think about getting out of a situation or becoming aggressive, if you think about shutting down, this is this is the self-care system. I'm gonna protect myself at all costs. But the opposite of that is a sense that the human being, we know we're not in danger, that there is a way, this is important, there's a way out, that there are steps that I can take in this moment or after this moment that will result in me feeling heard and understood. And it's very tricky because it's not just a conscious thing. Lots of people will say, well, I try all the time. I try to talk to my partner or they don't listen to me. Part of the rub is if you even heard the frustration in my voice when I modeled that, is that our own expectation of not being heard is part of the key. That is already shutting us down. That is already a communication to the other person. So a lot of people who experience themselves, including myself, as very verbal when it comes to one's emotional needs, and I think I've talked about this in a similar way before, what we often don't recognize is that when we come to that situation, is our, it is our expectation that we have to work hard to reach somebody. That is their trauma, is our trauma. I have to make my voice louder. I have to take care of the situation. I need to be clear. I have to take the step to talk to them, right? This is, this is in response often to our own fear, but that, that doesn't get communicated very often. And so what will happen in a couples therapy session, just to kind of riff on this for a little bit, is I will often slow that down and have that person who might be in the more anxious place open up and say, what is going on in your body? Something's happening there, right? They come in and the person says, he doesn't listen to me. He's quiet for days. I can't take it anymore. And so you see, I have a decision point. And I'm, for those of you out there who are couples therapists or are practitioners or clinicians, this is obviously old ground. But I think it's important to slow this down and really talk about it. You know, I have a decision at that point. I either accept what this person is saying, stay with that emotion and be like, yes, this person is shutting them out. And I could turn to them. I'm being a little bit comical here, but I could say, why do you shut them out? <laughs> but in some ways, that would be to take the bait. What actually is more important than me following that line is me looking at the person who's in the room in that moment who feels compelled to say those things and say, what is going on for you right now? Where's that coming from? Can you help me a bit? What's, I can hear it in your voice. There's frustration, there's anger, there's fatigue. What is, what's going on in your body? Can you help me? And when the person starts to open up and say, you know, my, my heart hurts or my throat's closing up or my, I'm nauseous or I can't take this anymore, you know, when that language starts to come out, that is when the magic happens. Why? 
Well, there's a huge shift at that point. And of course, I'm speaking in the ideal and I'm speaking abstractly here about a kind of imaginary couple. But this is a scenario that gets repeated hundreds and hundreds of times in my office. By me helping the person who is angry and verbal and, and feels responsible to keep kind of the emotional life, life of the relationship afloat, by me helping them slow down and go into their body, I'm giving the other person a chance to see them as struggling, as physically in pain, as trying to cope with these internal signals of anguish. And so that move, the move from this anguish coming out as a kind of pointed criticism or a literalness, right? Just to go back to that idea, it's very important, right? You don't pay attention to me. You don't care about me. <laughs> and I think we can flip it on its head, right? This also comes from the opposite of that, right? You are my everything. I don't mean to get in the way of poetry here. It's fine It's fine to fall in love and have bliss. And I mean it. I love saying that stuff to my wife. But the truth is much more complicated. And that's what I'm kind of getting at. The nuance, because that idea of the loss and the fall from the Garden of Eden and the loss of the ideal is what triggers us to go into these defensive postures. And they're not helpful when it comes to intimacy. What is helpful is being able to slow down and articulate the impact, the physiological impact. Sometimes, this is one way in, especially if one is prone to becoming very verbal and domineering conversations, we need to slow down and really put language to the motivation behind why we get aroused. And often the person who's more introverted or quiet will say, well, I'm used to seeing you feel strong and organized, and I'm not used to seeing you talk about not knowing what to do or what to say. Or I don't really understand sometimes when you come at me that you're feeling all that pressure. And the opposite is true. When people who are more introverted or avoidant or quiet start to put names to the discomfort and overwhelm that they feel, even just that, like a, like a drop of water, for someone to say, I don't know how to respond to you. And it's real. The overwhelm of emotional distress is paralyzing. And so I'm always angling to counteract this way that the human organism goes into battle. And the truth is, this is really the, the I think, the most salient point about all of this. The biggest mistake that we make when it comes to failures in our relationships is that we don't talk about it or repair it. And that is, of course, I realize a cliche, but bear with me for a sec. Some of us can't talk about it. There are so many good reasons why somebody tolerating the physiological distress of naming their emotions is a very tall order. And it goes back to all the years that somebody might have been through where it was never modeled. It, it, you know, it's the equivalent of, I don't know, showing up, you name the sport. You've never played tennis before. You've never jumped hurdles before. And someone's like, jump the hurdles. <sighs> Come on, jump the hurdles. 
people take that at face value, like talk to me or, or the opposite of that, right? Why do you get so angry? <laughs> Why do you get so worked up? Where's all that coming from? It's not a big deal. All of that stuff is useless. It's just, it doesn't help an iota because the truth is for us to make ourselves vulnerable and to learn how to feel safe in our bodies, to lean into someone else, trust that they're going to be there for us. It's an incredible task. It's a very moving one. And to go back to our, our metaphor of being cornered, and this is the kind of salient point that I wanted to make, it is like going to the gym, doing some kind of intervention where you try to give language or image to mind. And there's so many ways of doing that. You know, art therapy, sand play, just good old-fashioned talk therapy with someone that you can build a relationship with, just curiosity, reading about psychology, reading novels, just, you know, ways that we can imagine ourselves are so important because it's a lot to bear. And I, and I keep sort of refining this idea, which is not my own, of course. This, there are so many philosophical traditions, never mind a lot of the psychoanalytic literature. You know, I was reading about Bion lately, this revered psychoanalyst who talked about how there's just this incredible demand to suffer the onslaught of life, everything that's coming at us. And I don't think it's, when we talk about neurophysiology, often people can think that it is reductive. You know, it's not sexy. <laughs> How can we chalk up the human experience to looking at regulating affect? But I think we can, because if I can't have this thought, if I can't think my pain, if I can't find a way to put into some coherent manner what is going on for me, I will not have relationship with myself even. Forget everybody else. I'll feel alien to myself because that is the, the human mechanism is to be able to put our internal experience into image and language. And, and the last point that I'll make because this is obviously to be continued, and I'd love your feedback on this. Please write to me. Find me on Instagram. I am Mitchell Smolkin. Write to me at feedback at mitchellsmolkin.com. I'd love to hear from you. These phenomena of, of trying to withstand the human condition is different for every generation and every culture and every place in the world. It has a different flavor to it. Psychotherapy is itself a response to trying to survive life. It came about because we were changing. You know, feminism in many ways, I think, started with psychotherapy because it was one of the first times that people could start to be taken seriously. And that's obviously debatable because this whole issue of sexual violence and that has taken years and years to reach the level where it is considered in the way that it is. But the first patient, Anna O, oh, became a feminist early 1900s in Germany. Of course you did, because to have the space where you can metabolize your inner life with another person present is was revolutionary. And I think that we are at a different cusp here around the degree to which certain societies and cultures demand a linguistic tool. And we see it in the workplace, in in the culture of workplaces and the culture of schools, you know, 
bullying isn't tolerated, whether you're a child or you're a CEO, right? We cannot let this stuff go in to our limbs. We can't let the blood and oxygen take over and rush to our limbs when we are overwhelmed, which translates sometimes into some pretty vicious language just to, to take this back. It becomes literal. And we are fighting throughout the lifespan as we approach our death, as we approach bigger questions, we are fighting to increase our capacity to tolerate this in a humane, relatable way that we do not turn on the other, we do not zombify the other, we do not zombify ourselves. We cry together at the brokenness of how we are different, and yet we still must survive and have some way to understand ourselves. We have to have the subjectivity of our own mind to be able to go to bed at night and wake up, and we have to be able to tolerate the otherness of people without resorting to feeling alien. Anyway, it's been great to, to talk about this with you, and please rate the podcast, share it with your friends, write to me, and I can't wait to talk to you soon. I remain faithfully yours. <laughs>